Hey friends, cozy up to the Meyer Side Chat, a podcast where guests explain their journey into health and wellness along with other passions and interests. And here's your host, Bill Meyer. Um, hey everybody, welcome to a Meyer Side Chat. This is your host, Bill Meyer. We are uh, starting off a new podcast. Uh, this is the first episode. Thanks for being here. Got a good friend of mine with us today, Rob Finch. Rob, say hello. Hey, how y'all doing? Thanks for having me, Bill. Excellent. Um, so, you know, got the uh, first podcast episode jitters, and uh, you know, but really excited to have you here, Rob. Just uh, from a uh, from my perspective, to give you guys a little intro. Good friend of mine. We've been working out together here at Meyer Fitness for about I don't know, it was about a year. Yeah, coming up on a year, I think in April. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, work out a few times a week, and uh, just over the last year, we've definitely created a good uh, good friendship. Um, so I felt comfortable with bringing him on for the first episode, and uh, you know, so pretty excited. It's kind of a cool little new chapter for Meyer Fitness. Yeah. And uh, so anyways, we're glad to have you guys here. Glad to have Rob here. Um, Rob, just kind of, you know, give the listeners a basic intro of who you are, where you're from, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So at this point in my life, I guess I would classify myself as an entrepreneur and investor. Um, I've run all kinds of different businesses, mostly online businesses, the super majority of which have failed uh, over the course of my life and, of course, taught me incredibly valuable lessons. Um, And back in 2017, I had my first real success in a company called ICO Alert, which was in the crypto space that we'll dive into in a little bit and and talk about what that means. And he has Um, the t-shirt on right now. Yeah, I got the t-shirt on. I noticed that that earlier. (laughs) I found this in my closet the other day. It's a good good workout shirt. Reminds me of the time. Um, But I built that company up to, I think at our peak, it was like 18 people and worked with my brother uh, up in Pittsburgh and lived there for a while. Um, and that sort of parlayed a, a lot of what I learned there and, frankly, a lot of the financial resources I gained there um, into further investing in the crypto and blockchain space. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. And then does ICO Alert still exist at this point, or is that kind of a historical thing in no, your it's life? it's kind of a, a relic of 2017. If, hey. if anybody out there listening is in crypto, they'll know exactly what I'm talking about with ICOs or initial coin offerings was like this new, basically a new way for startups to raise money. Uh-huh. Um, and they sort of piggybacked off the hype of Bitcoin and this blockchain technology that was so new. And everybody thought, oh, these, these companies, because they're utilizing this tech in some way, must be worth, you know, $100 billion, $200 billion. So sure. you saw just insane valuations for companies that had literally no products um, and were just raising money online in this this new fundraising model and that was in pittsburgh yeah that was out of pittsburgh but of course a, a global company yeah sure what did you think of pittsburgh did you enjoy it you know pittsburgh was all right it's it's definitely a cool city it has the the second most bridges to any city i think second only to venice in the world mm. so it, it's a really cool city dynamic but the weather sucks mm. and if you live in pittsburgh you know what i'm talking about you have i don't know 60 or 90 days um, of, of real sunshine every year, and it pretty much comes in the summer. So yeah. the summer is beautiful, but the rest of the time, it's just cloudy. And it's yeah. actually the second to second to Seattle in cloudiest cities in the country. Just so. kind of gray all the time. Uh, just this horrible gray that, like, saps the life out of your soul. <laughs> At least my soul is pretty bad. I, I'm lucky enough to where I spent most of my you know, younger years in, in Texas where, you know, basically the sun is always shining. Right. You get, like, you know, maybe 45 days of cold, uh, so pretty much the exact opposite now in, in Virginia. So you, what what brought you to Virginia? Um, you know, childhood and everything. Yeah. You know? yeah, so I grew up here. So the first, you know, 17, 18 years of my life, I was here before I went off to art school in Chicago, before dropping out and starting a web design agency there. Um, but I moved back basically because I have a ton of family here. And mm-hmm. it, it was kind of amazing on the, the weather front moving back. Mm-hmm. I forgot that it could be sunny this often <laughs> after living in Pittsburgh for like a year and a half. The sun actually exists. Yeah, it's here. Look at this. Amazing. Oh, my God. The clouds are not permanent. Now, tell me about, you know, give us the, the elevator speech on Chicago. Why'd you go there? You know, how long you stay? Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, so I actually got a photography scholarship to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went up there for two and a half years. And shortly after I got there, um, I pivoted into graphic design. So I didn't actually end up taking any photography classes, even though that oh. was my scholarship. Um, and my goal with that was to eventually transition that into web design. Mm-hmm. And I realized very, very early on that in the graphic design program, you didn't get to web design until like your senior year. And mm-hmm. there were only a couple classes, and I really didn't think that was going to be enough to make a career out of it. So I did what I think a lot of people end up doing, and I just started Googling it and looking up YouTube tutorials. And eventually, after 
basically banging my head into the wall every you know three or six months when I would hit this crazy roadblock, I taught myself how to code. So basic websites, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, mm-hmm. um, and started getting little clients on the side. And at a certain point, I had enough small clients where I was like, why am I throwing a bunch of money into a pit, basically, for a degree that I'm no longer even using? As in school. As right? in school, yeah. yeah when sure. I can just continue you know, putting all of my time and effort into this company and, and actually make enough to support myself. So, Do you think that you said you said the said the magic word there of YouTube. Do you think, you know, I, I have kids that are you know young, you know, seven and four. Do you think that by the time ten or twelve more years has passed, something like YouTube, where you know how to how to learn how to podcast, how to how to open a business, how to do this, you know, basically how to do anything. Do you think there's going to be this major push with my kids and eventually maybe your kids down the road? You know, just simply saying, well, other than the party experience, is college worth it? It's such a topic right now in, right. in, in politics. You know, so from your standpoint, if you actually went for a year or so, and now you've been, you know, successful to a certain extent with, you know, entrepreneur, investor, self-taught, um, you know, What's the future look like, in your opinion, from a college standpoint? Yeah, I think traditional college, as we know it today, makes sense for some degrees. But if you think of college as an investment, if you think, okay, I have, you know, a hundred grand. Hopefully, it's not debt. You know, mm-hmm. I, I really hate debt. I went through a bankruptcy that we can talk about if you want. Sure. So I, I try to avoid debt at all costs. Um, but if you think of college as an investment, I think the biggest mistake people make, myself included, going to art school was. Think of how you're going to get a return on that investment. What are you going to do after college to pay back that hundred grand or fifty grand or whatever it will be that you're going to rack up? Um, and I think some degrees make sense and can give you a great ROI. You know, if you're an engineer today, you are going to get a job. It's yeah. basically zero percent probability that you're not going to be employed. Um, if you're a doctor or a lawyer, you know all of these sort of traditional. I guess, career paths that really require that structured education, excuse me, I think that makes sense. But Mm -hmm. when you're talking about going and getting a liberal arts degree or an English degree or, you know, painting for four years and then expecting to turn that into a job, I just Mm -hmm. don't think that's the best investment in yourself. And I think there are even new sort of educational models emerging. Um, There's a school called Lambda School, L-A-M-B-D-A, I believe it is, Mm -hmm. where they pay you to go to school after they test to see, you know, what your probability of success is, and they teach you how to code and how to become an engineer. And um, at the end of it, you pay, I think, a percentage of your salary for the first two years back. But Mm. there are all kinds of people experimenting with that that I think will disrupt the education market further. That's interesting. My, you know, years ago, I was, uh, I spent a lot of my, my, 20s kind of traveling and this and that whenever I could get away I'd get out of the country and just you know meet people had different experiences etc I remember meeting these uh, two people and traveling for about five days they were from Australia and uh, this one particular person she had taken a job at a business that was then paying for her to basically be on sabbatical for lack of better terms oh wow Um, so but in, in return, like she was on salary, and this is, you know, this is a foggy memory story here, but she was on salary getting paid full time uh, for six months, hypothetically, four to eight months, something in that, um, while not working. Wow. But the change or the, the trade of that was that she was then committed to that business, uh, you know, legally committed to that business for, I think it was like four to six years. Oh, interesting. So it's like, here's a preemptive reward mm-hmm. of faith because of your skills, your talents, you know, blah, blah, blah. You know, go enjoy yourself and then come back and work. Hmm. And, you know, I think I was, I don't know, 25 at the time. And I think she was 25 and her boyfriend that she was traveling with. You know, so that that young Adrian, she's like, well, that's that's how... Australia is. It was wow. like I think it was something about, uh, and, and, and listeners out there might know a little bit more about it than I do. But it, it's something about being a Commonwealth country where she could go to any other Commonwealth country. <laughs> like yeah, I think she had spent time in England, but um, you know, again, it was paid for by the business. She signed a contract. They said, "Well, we don't need you for another year, so huh. go do your thing." But uh, it, it, it's interesting, you know the different methods of how things are done from an education standpoint and then leaving you know higher education to getting a first job how it is here in the states versus other places and what value 
you know, things have on, 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 do you go to college? Do you not go to college? And, you know, frankly, when I was in school, it was, you know, a lot more affordable than it is now. Oh, know, absolutely. 20, 23 years ago. Yeah. And, you know, the government is really great at messing up systems that are working <laughs> relatively well, in my opinion. And college <laughs> is one of them, you know, by putting out all these grants, then colleges raise the price of tuition because, oh, students are getting free money from the government. Let's go ahead and jack mm -hmm. up the price. And, uh, I don't think that the value that you're getting out of that college experience has increased as well. I think it's about the same value, maybe even less value today. Sure. But you're paying exponentially more than you were, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, scooting right along, uh, Rob came into to my life here at the gym at Meyer Fitness. And, uh, you know, like we said, you know, almost a year ago, um, tell us a little bit about, you know, you know, your history of exercise, um, what made you make a decision to come here, uh, what do you want to work on, kind of give us that rundown. Yeah, so growing up, I would say I was relatively active, you know, when I was little, I was on a soccer team here and there, um, but never was really a big passion of mine. Uh, and in high school, kind of just to stay active, I was on the track and cross, cross country teams. And for track, I was always long distance, I did the mile and two mile and cross country, of course, was 5Ks. Um, but after that point, when I was in college, I would, you know, run maybe once every two weeks. At some points, it would be months where I wouldn't exercise at all. And I had kind of these little spurts where I'd say, okay, you know, this is the time. I'm going to go get in the gym. I'm going to start working out. And that would last for, you know, a couple weeks at, at the most, I think I got to a couple months. Um, and then I hit that plateau and my interest would kind of, you know, wane or fade and then I would stop doing it again. Mm -hmm. um, and I think what I realized is that the value in coming to a place like Meyer Fitness, where I have you, a professional, you know, walking me through everything, um, is is comes in a couple different ways. First of all, I don't have to think about what it is I'm going to do that day. I just yep. have to get myself to the gym. But part of that is that the social pressure of having to cancel with another human being and saying, "Oh, Bill, I'm not going to be there today yeah. because of this bullshit excuse." Like, and then you see the, you see the three dots coming back. Yeah, like, exactly. Oh, no. Like, oh god, anxiety. <sighs> so that pressure alone has kept me committed for now. Like you said, almost a year. So I, I think. I've realized the tremendous value that you get in having a personal trainer because it just keeps you committed, you know, yeah. at a, a certain level. Yeah. And, 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 you know, uh, listeners out there might not know, obviously, because you're not living it in the last year, but the progress that you then make through the, you know, inherited consistency Absolutely. of, you know, meeting expectations, meeting a schedule, a consistent schedule, you know, almost taking the emotional side out of it and just saying, I just need to show up and do it. Absolutely. You know, versus how do I feel today? Do I want to go for a run today? I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll squeeze it in. Right. You know, I don't really like it right now. You know, there's so much emotion tied up. You know, in this scenario with you, you've been able to progress as much as you have with your goals. I think because you're able to kind of compartmentalize the emotion and just say, look, I'm signed up. He's waiting for me. I trust him. He's highly educated, highly experienced. You know, he knows what he's doing to get me to the goals that I want to get to. Absolutely. And I think a, a big part of that, too, was a psychological change. And I always thought of working out as, oh, you're working out for your physical body. Mm -hmm. But I realized, and this was after, I don't know, listening to some Joe Rogan podcast or something, as cliche as that may sound, sure. that it really now I work out for my mental health. Yeah. It, it does something with the endorphins, and it, it just really clears your mind to get in the gym and work out, where I obviously have goals for my physical body, gaining more muscle and things like that. But the primary reason why I still come is to, to keep my mental health in check. Expand on the, uh, I agree, expand on the, ob the objective side of things. Like, you know, what exactly are you trying to accomplish from a mental and physical side? Yeah, so I came in here uh, almost a year ago, 10 months ago, and was, was super, super skinny, basically skin and bones. And I had the, a singular goal, essentially, of building muscle. Mm -hmm. um, and since that point, I've gained, I think, close to 20 pounds now of muscle since I started 10 months ago. And it, it's made a, a dramatic difference in my life and the way that I look and the activities that I can do. I can go hiking for longer. There's more outdoor activities that I enjoy now because I don't get tired after the first 10 minutes. Um, so it, it's been a really great ride so far. It, and, you know, from the excitement point of view, I, I have to touch on it, you know, it's to hear you hear someone say, you know, and ever since then, I've gained 20 pounds. Yeah, you know, that's, yeah. that's, a, that's a rare thing. Um, so the excitement of having someone come in and say, Look, I feel like I'm too thin. I'm not I'm not strong enough. Um, I want to gain weight. How do I go about doing that? It's exciting. Because look, to be honest, in our line of work, we don't get a lot of that. Hmm. So it's a diamond in the rough scenario of now I get to use that part of my education that might not necessarily be used that often. Right. So, and I'm kind of one of those people that I need to, to base my 
I don't know, my, my, my mental and physical effort from a career standpoint off of data, off of, uh, you know, we were here at this point and now six months later, we're here. And, you know, to have different challenges along the way helps you stay stimulated in a, in, in a long career. You know, I've been in this industry for almost 20 years. Wow. And, you know, I've, I've done different things with different people and with different goals and et cetera. But so few times do you run across people that want to gain weight and, 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 and put on muscle uh, versus I need to lose 20 pounds and, and make this area of my body smaller. So right. It's intriguing, it, you know. Being selfish, it was intriguing because I was like, "Ooh, this is a fun project," you know. <laughs> so, and then lo and behold, you're an enjoyable person to be around. So right. I was like, "Oh, thank God!" <laughs> you know, this guy's going to be here a, a lot, and you know, he's a good guy to talk to and hang out with. Um, explain a little bit of uh, you know any issues you've had physically, um, injuries, uh, things like that, of uh, setbacks or obstacles that you have, you know, in the gym, outside of the gym. Uh, that, that, that have affected you along the way? Yeah, so when I was doing track and cross country in high school, uh, some races would be totally fine. I wouldn't have any trouble breathing. And other races, after the first, you know, literally five minutes of running, I would have this crazy just feeling in my chest. Like, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't get enough air in my lungs. And mm. so after going to the doctor a couple times, and um, you, could, you could really tell, you know, the more I grew when I hit my growth spurt that my chest, my sternum was basically going the wrong way. It was concave instead of convex. Mm. Um, and that was something that basically we determined needed to be fixed. So yeah. we went to the doctor, the, there's this thing called the NUS procedure mm -hmm. where they slice open your sides uh, effectively and slip in these metal bars and then pop them in one big motion and pop your sternum out so that it's no longer concave, it's yeah. convex. Um, and to determine that I needed that, there was a scale that they used. It was like a one to a hundred scale. And if you were over something like 30, they said, okay, you definitely need to do it because it's pushing on your major organs. Yeah. And I was in the 60s. So wow. it was something where they're like, okay, you definitely need to get this done. Let's do it this one summer. Um, so two of my summers in high school, or I guess maybe one in high school and one in college were basically taken up with recovery. One putting the bars in and one taking the bars out. Um, so that was my first major you know, problem with my body that I encountered. I think I always thought, oh, I'm this skinny guy. I'm quote unquote in shape because you know people around me are overweight. Therefore, I must be doing everything right. Yep. Um, and that was the first major problem. Where I was like, oh, wow, my body is not perfect. This is like a, a big challenge. And ever since that point, I mean, my lung capacity basically doubled and mm -hmm. I can do things for longer. I can go on longer runs. And so it's been a great change. From a timeline standpoint, from when you were, you know, let's just say diagnosed with, with the issue that you had, to the point of actually having the operation. What, 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 how long of time was that? I think it was only a few months. Mm -hmm. um, if I remember correctly, it was like February where it was diagnosed, and then I think May or June was when they, they put the bars in, and it was supposed to be one metal bar that they put in, and then during the procedure, they realized they needed two. So they mm -hmm. strapped two in there, and but it was really crazy. My sternum was so concave that it was pushing my heart over to the left side of my chest, wow. when your heart is really supposed to be you know, generally in the middle of your chest. So it was mm -hmm. doing a lot of bad things, and I'm glad I got it taken care of. Yeah. Did they put the second bar in? Did they? Well, you know, so they plan on doing one. Right. Obviously, you're you're not you know conscious. For right. This. Thank God. You know? <laughs> but did they? Did, you know, did you just kind of find out later that they had to do the second? Yeah, it was when I woke up. They were like, "Oh, by the way, we put by two bars way. in." I was like, "Okay, cool." And I still have the bars today at my house as kind of a reminder of that time. That's crazy. Yeah. So, what exercises you know does that you know? come into play with, you know, in, in kind of a negative? Is there, does it still remain an obstacle for you in the gym? Um, you know, is things you can't do, et cetera, et cetera? There are like certain little things I can't do. Like I can't touch my chin to my chest all the way. Mm -hmm. Something about the, the muscles now, the way that they're, they're built or something in my chest prevents me from doing that. Um, but otherwise, I feel I feel better now, definitely, than before the surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, it was a brutal recovery process. I it, mm -hmm. it was hard to walk for basically the first entire month. I had to sleep in an upright chair for three months for that entire summer, mm. and it was just brutal because they effectively destroy all of the muscles in your chest. But you don't realize until that happens just how many chest muscles you use to stand up or to sit up or all these different things. Yeah, so. as soon as you get something taken away from you, yeah, you know, whether it be your pinky finger, right, or you know. You your chest cavity yeah you know it's like you're like oh that was that shit's important wow i enjoyed walking that yeah. was a great thing that was a good thing <laughs> i hope to get back to that at some point exactly 
Um, where do you see exercise playing in your life? You know, from this point on, you know, are you uh, looking to achieve more objectives? Uh, you talked earlier, uh, actually a couple of workouts ago, talking about a certain goal of you know gaining more weight. Or are you satisfied where you're at? Yeah, I mean, I think now fundamentally working out has become a permanent part of my life. Mm-hmm. It gives me so many benefits, not just for my physical body, but like I said, for my mental health. Yeah. Um, that I'll definitely continue doing it. And my goal for this year is to add another 20 pounds of muscle, uh, particularly in my legs. We're focusing a lot on my legs. Uh, don't skip leg day. You know? Don't skip leg day. <laughs> friends don't let friends skip leg day. There we day. go. I like that. Um, segwaying, Rob. Tell us about you know the day in the life in Rob Finch. You know, from when you wake up, uh, what do you do? What's your what's your ha- you know your hobbies and you know what's your day to day activity level? Yeah. So right now it's a little bit different than it has been for basically the last decade. Um, I'm 26 right now, I'll be 27 this year, and for the first, or really for the last 10 years of my life since I was 16 in high school, I had a singular goal of trying to make money. That was like my definition of success. So in high school, I would go to yard sales on the weekends and buy stuff for cheap and then resell it on eBay. And I remember making my first $900 and showing my friends, and they're like, oh my God, this is incredible, you made $900? Like, you can go go out to eat and go buy video games and, and yeah. all this different stuff. That was so much money back then. But then, you know, parlaying that into all the different businesses that I tried and failed at until eventually hitting one successfully, um, that was really my singular goal. And the, the way I lived my life on a day-to-day basis was much different than it was pretty much entirely work. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I did ICO Alert, it was basically a year of 16-hour days nonstop just to capitalize on that time. And in hindsight, I'm so glad that I did that, yeah. um, especially since it was so short-lived. But now, in this kind of transition period, I'm realizing that um, you know, I obviously am very fortunate and, and I thank the universe for this every day that I don't have to focus on money as the primary goal anymore. Mm-hmm. So I'm in a transition period now where my day looks like I'll wake up. If it's a workout day, I'll come here, work out at the gym. Um, I'll go home. I'll maybe, you know, read for a couple hours, maybe play some video games. Um, I have a couple projects that I'm working on uh, with a friend, helping him out with, you know, his side business effectively. Um, so I'm just kind of seeing where life takes me, but ultimately my goal is to find something that is more fulfilling, mm. not just in this primal carnal way of making money, but something that where I feel like I'm making an impact uh, in a lot of people's lives. Where do you think the, the drive at such a young age to you know hyper-focus on making money, where, where, do you think that came from something specific? You know, your upbringing, uh, you know, like I, I know like, in my, my childhood, my, my dad lost his job twice, you know, after I was like 12, 13 years of age, you know, we started, you know, I got a real quick lesson on, you know, turn the lights off when you leave the room, and right. take shorter showers, and, you know, we're not having the, the, the nice pizza this Friday, we're going to have, right. we're going to have Little Caesars, you know, uh, did you have any influence like that, or just kind of a, you know, you know, diamond in the rough scenario? I mean, I think I saw my dad working a lot. He ran a healthcare architecture firm for like 40 years and for the first 10, and I think it was until I was in second grade, it, it really wasn't doing so well. And around that second grade point was sort of this inflection point for his business where then, you know, we moved into a bigger house and didn't have to buy clothes at a thrift store. But I don't think, I think I was so young then that I didn't really realize that we didn't have much money growing up. Yeah. Um, and then obviously after second grade, my family was more fortunate, his business was more successful and then we did. But um, you know, throughout my entire upbringing, I saw him working all the time, whether he was at work and I didn't see him or he was home on the weekends and it was a Saturday and he would roll out the big plans on the dining room table and, you know, be finishing up a project. Um, and I think I saw sort of the fruits of that labor and wanted to mimic that in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Um, but beyond that, I also had other idols growing up. Rob Durdeck was a huge one where he had really? shows like Fantasy Factory and saw him first on Rob and Big. And, Rob Durdeck, he always had all these different businesses that he was working on, and I think his name being Rob and mine being Rob, it, it kind of resonated in some kind of way. Uh, superficially, sometimes that's all it needs. It's, Absolutely. You know, just like a, hey, th- that could be me. Yeah. What, you know, why is it just him when it really could be me or the next person? Oh, absolutely. Well, I always saw myself as, as being able to accomplish something like that, where I think a lot of people get in a rut where like, oh, I can never do something like that. I can you know, never be successful or never make this amount of money. But uh, once you get through that mental barrier, I think it gets a lot easier as well. So you you, you touched on Rob Deerdeck for a second. Yeah. You know, is there a short list of personal and professional influencers in your life, you know, in the history in the last 10, 15 years that you've kind of, you know, not necessarily tried to emulate, but uh, have always had, you know, I've got a couple of people in mind for myself that, you know, on day-to-day activities in business uh, or, or, or my personal life, 
you know, there's always that, you know, that voice in the back of your head from a book I read or, you know, right. you know, someone I'm following on, on online and I've read and listened to for years. You know, has anybody like that been for you? I mean, Rob Durdick was a huge one growing up. I think more recently it's been different people. Uh, I've read some of Ray Dalio's books. He has a lot of good investing principles and even just work and life principles. Uh, but Elon Musk is a huge inspiration for me as someone mm-hmm. who can not only change the lives of millions of people and make a positive impact, for example, on you know emissions in the, the auto industry um, or increasing the adoption of solar worldwide or making uh, humankind a multi-planetary species, all these crazy goals, mm-hmm. but he can do them in a way where it actually makes economic sense. So he's not asking for a handout from other people to make this thing work and do good. It's actually a real business that makes real money, but also can implement real change. And I think that is just incredibly inspiring. And through social media, from my point of view, it's so accessible. His personality yeah. is accessible. It's, it's like he's just a you know standard real person that just is a great idea, you know, great idea man, great executor. Um, but you know the you know the, the basic forty year old like myself kind of says, well, he's just a regular person. You yeah. Know? So it's easy to kind of follow and be influenced by by someone like that. Absolutely. Well, and if if you ask somebody on the street, hey, name a, a car company CEO that's not Elon Musk, they're going to think for a long time, and they're probably not going to come up with an uh, answer. Yeah, that was not scripted, and I'm sitting here going, all right, come on now. <laughs> Uh, and I, I just can't think of it. I asked this question to someone, and they said, "Henry Ford? Oh no, he's dead." <laughs> yeah, that, that's true. But you know, that, that's that, that's been a while. There's been a lot of generations yeah. since since the beginning of that. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, earlier you mentioned Bitcoin. Yep. Um, cryptocurrency is definitely a thing that is, I think, in my opinion, very new still. Although historically, maybe it's not as new as you know the last year for me, kind of starting to pay attention to it, right? Uh, hearing other people in the gym talk about it. That's kind of my universe is, you know, the hundred or so people that are in here on a weekly basis, you know, you start hearing that B word a little bit more and right. Bitcoin and, you know, uh, you know, so I know that plays a large role in your life, uh, just cryptocurrency in general, because yeah. you've done some investing with that. Um, you, you know, you've been involved in businesses with that. Uh, you know, tell us a little bit about how you got started in that. And then uh, we'll go from there. Yeah, so back in early 2013, when I was a broke college student at art school trying to teach myself how to code, um, I was looking for more you know, design and, and development um, opportunities, essentially. So I was, I was on a Reddit, uh, I think it was a job board or something like that, and there was a posting for the Bitcoin subreddit that said, hey, help us design an ad. Like, help us design a banner ad to get more people to come to the Bitcoin subreddit. Hmm. And uh, I ended up actually not entering that contest. But it took me down a rabbit hole of going, oh, what's Bitcoin? Oh, it's a way to, to use money without trusting a bank? Okay. I, and I've always naturally sort of had this distrust for authority for whatever reason. Um, but we can go into that if you want in a mm-hmm. little bit. Um, but that initially appealed to me. And I you know, jumped down the proverbial rabbit hole and started doing more and more research and trying to learn about this thing. And I remember the, the first Bitcoin I bought, I think it was back, it was like $80. Um, and which I sold very soon thereafter because I needed to rent money effectively. There but go. there was no infrastructure in place at that time. It was just kind of this you know, new concept of, hey, you know, there's this network that nobody controls. Nobody can take the money from you. The monetary policy is you know, set in stone and very predictable over the next 140 years. Um, and it, it appealed to me in so many different ways that I took $400 of my rent money effectively, went down to the local grocery store, wired the money through, uh, I think oh it was gosh. a MoneyGram or Western Union to somebody in Japan who then four or five hours later sent me the bitcoins Are you serious? <laughs> so he actually sent it and I remember so vividly walking into the CVS before I went to the Jewel Osco this was in Chicago yeah. and I walked into CVS and said oh can I send you know a moneygram and they said oh no the machine's down and I started to walk back home thinking oh it's a sign maybe I shouldn't buy it I'm gonna get scammed I turned around and said, you know what? Fuck it. Like, let's go do it. Yeah. Let's walk to Jewelasco and see if they have one. And I walked up to the counter and said, oh, I need to send this $400 to, you know, Shirahaki, whoever it was in Japan. And I sent it thinking, okay, maybe I got scammed. Maybe I didn't. And I walked home and four or five hours later, there was the Bitcoin. So. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, seriously, guys out there listening, you know, Rob and I have spent a lot of time working out together, having lunch together, this and that. I've never heard that story of the, the, the initial purchase of, like, oh, yeah. you know, the initial jumping off of the cliff. I mean, so where did the trust come in, you know, to, to, to spend the 400 to, to, you know, What did you read or, or, you know, what video did you watch that actually made you go, 
Okay, I'll do that. Yeah, I mean, I started out reading the Bitcoin white paper, and the white paper kind of outlined uh, from the creator who is this anonymous guy or group of people, nobody knows, named Satoshi Nakamoto. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read the white paper and sort of the, the main concepts behind it, and there was this really you know growing community on that Bitcoin subreddit. Um, where I started talking with people and asking questions. And, you know, some people would point to Andreas Antonopoulos videos. He was a huge influence. And I think I just trusted in the community enough to say, okay, you know, let's try it. Let's send $400 to this guy in Japan and see if it works out. Timeline. I'm, I'm big into timelines. So from reading the, the white papers the first time to yeah. sending the 400 to Japan, how much time was that? I mean, probably about a month. Oh, wow. And I remember wow. this was this was during one. So Bitcoin has had you know many different boom and bust cycles, just like any market, but it tends to happen on a much faster timeline. Yeah. Um, so when Bitcoin was at eighty dollars, this was right before the run up to I believe eleven or twelve hundred. Um, and I remember going in. I had this sort of free form art class where you could sort of talk about whatever you wanted and focus on whatever you wanted for that that class. And I had a lot of conversations with the teacher about Bitcoin. Like, what do you think about this thing? And I remember there was a few week period where I went in. It started out. It was I don't know forty dollars. The next week it was eighty dollars. The next week after that it was one hundred and sixty. The next week after that it would double again. And it was this crazy tumultuous time where I realized, okay, I got to get in on this thing and and yeah. actually get some of it. So, oh my gosh, it was wild. So. Um, where, how does someone like me get comfortable with the idea of Bitcoin? You know, I'm a little older than you. Um, it's still so damn fresh to me. You know, I see it all over Twitter and everything else. Uh, you know, now obviously, you know, it's being spoken about for the last few years on, on actual television news cycles. Right. You know, CNBC are, loves it. Yeah, I was gonna say they're, <laughs> they're, 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 it's talked about every day. It seems like. Yeah. But you know, when I talk to my to my dad about it, you know, he's like, oh. I don't know about all that. Yeah. You know? And I was like, well, I'm investing a little bit into it. I'm just, you know, just some throwaway money that that's not completely needed. Right. He, you know, long pause. Look, just don't, don't, you know, just be careful. <laughs> you know, so you've got a lot more people with that mindset. Absolutely. Uh, than you do with the, you know, let's send $400 to Japan mindset. Oh, absolutely. Um, how, do, how does the everyday person right now, because obviously it's not going away. This is not a fad, right? And you're going to explain a little bit more of that in a minute. But how does someone like myself and others get comfortable with the idea of, of like, hey, I'm going to invest twenty dollars into Bitcoin this week, and hell, I might do it again next week. Yeah. You and it, first of all, I should preface with it's you don't have to send money to Japan anymore. There, oh, are, there are real regulated financial institutions that you can go to that have insurance where you can buy it and either store it on your own or have them store it for you. Um, but I think if you think about money today. Money is already digital in our lives. It's, it's something in, in the high 98th percentile of all money, particularly U.S. dollars, are already digital. So you think, okay, where do these dollars live? You know, it's not a physical piece of paper in a bank vault somewhere in Fort Knox being guarded by a bunch of people with AR-15s. It's a number in a ledger in a bank's centralized database. And mm-hmm. a centralized database, meaning they control it, they can go in. If they really wanted to, they could you know, close your account, freeze your funds, as has happened so often. Um, it, they really have complete control over that database, over that ledger that says, hey, you know, Bill has $100 in his account, Rob has 50 in his account, um, and they control that system. So what Bitcoin effectively is, is a change on that control dynamic where it says, okay, if we're going to have digital money, let's not put it in the hands of a few banks or the Federal Reserve or these couple major, you know, massive financial institutions. Mm-hmm. Let's put it in the hands of effectively no one. No one controls it. No one is able to come into your account and freeze your account or seize your money from you. Um, it's this new sort of control paradigm that I don't think a lot of people can grasp very easily because they're like, what do you mean nobody controls it? Somebody has to control it. Mm-hmm. Surely someone who created it controls it. And it's, it's this kind of weird dynamic that people have a hard time wrapping their heads around. Sure. But, you know, it, it is truly not going to go away. It's only growing at this point. The attention towards it's growing. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I've asked you this in a workout. Is there a Bitcoin debit card at this point? Can I exchange something for Bitcoin? Can I buy something with Bitcoin You know, that's a tangible item from a store? There are, yeah. I mean, there are all kinds of different companies that will effectively just convert your Bitcoin to dollars every time you swipe a debit card and allow you to spend it. Um, but what's interesting about it is that so part of the way that Bitcoin works is that rather than one bank keeping a copy of this ledger and, you know, that's it, they control the ledger, they can change it. Everyone in the network effectively keeps a copy of the ledger. So mm-hmm. I know at all times, OK, Bill, you have $100, I have 50 or if you have 100 Bitcoin, I have 50 Bitcoin. Um, 
whatever that that number is, everybody in the system sort of keeps each other in check and keeps a copy of it. Mm. Uh, and, and when you have this many people keeping a copy of it, every transaction that you make also has to go in that ledger. So when you talk about spending $5 worth of Bitcoin on a cup of coffee, you have to sort of think, okay, is that a transaction that I really need to be in this immutable, unchangeable ledger that everybody in the world has to keep a copy of? And generally, I think the answer is no for small purchases. Sure. But when you look at other um, sort of purchases or transfers of money, you know, if you look at places where the currency is hyperinflated, like in Venezuela, and you need to get your wealth out of the country, uh, putting that transaction of converting your dollars into or your Venezuelan bolivars into Bitcoin, that's mm -hmm. a transaction you want on the blockchain for everybody to have. So I think where I'm going with this is that while you can use Bitcoin peer to peer without anybody's permission, I don't think that's how most people will use it to spend it. You'll mm -hmm. have some kind of an intermediary like a Coinbase or somebody like that with a debit card that you can go and swipe and they'll do the conversion for you automatically. Sure. Or even just keep everything in their own internal database um, and sort of update your number in their account. So you mentioned Venezuela as an example of, right. you know, maybe somewhere you don't want to have a lot of funds right now. Yeah, I mean, from a from a standpoint of you know, international governments, things like that, is Bitcoin and and the like, is it valued? Is it feared? Uh, are, are are some countries more behind it than others? Are there some countries that are just like, no, nope, that's not allowed here? Um, what's you know what is it looking like from a global standpoint? Yeah, I mean there are a few countries globally that have effectively outlawed it. Whether you can actually stop the activity is up for debate. You know, BitTorrent, this peer-to-peer -peer music sharing service, is sure. technically illegal but can't be stopped because you'd have to shut down the whole internet in order to do so. Um, so several countries have deemed it illegal and sort of shut down the exchanges in their country, and other countries have actually embraced it fully. Um, if you look at Malta, it's this small uh, blockchain. They call it Blockchain Island. It's this, this oh, really? small island nation. Cool. And they've embraced it as a way to get huge companies to come move their businesses there because they have positive regulation for it. Um, in the U.S., it's, it's really interesting because most of the criticism from regulators has come from blockchain projects that are not Bitcoin. So there are thousands of these things that all do different things. They're not all trying to be a new type of money like Bitcoin. Uh, many of them are trying to host decentralized applications like a, a new form of Facebook that actually pays you instead of just paying Mark Zuckerberg, where you would get a chunk of the ad revenue instead of um, hmm. it all going to, to the Facebook executive team and, and shareholders. Um, but it, there are so many of these things, and a lot of those have central points of failure where there is a centralized team behind it. They sort of control the network in a lot of ways. It's, it's not this decentralized system like Bitcoin is, and those yeah. have gotten a lot of regulatory flack, huge fines from the SEC for doing um, what were effectively illegal fundraising offerings like the ICOs. Right. Um, but Bitcoin is, is in this kind of weird legal zone where... You know, Mark Zuckerberg came and testified in front of Congress for Libra, which was their sort of centralized yeah, everybody watched cryptocurrency that. that they were trying to put out. And, and people watched that and it became this criticism of Facebook. But if a congressman says, hey, let's talk to somebody about Bitcoin, there's nobody to go to and bring in front of Congress. There is no CEO of Bitcoin. There's no managing board. There's no board right. of directors. It's, it's just sort of this new concept that I don't think the law can touch in a lot of ways. Hmm. So is it necessary? Do I, you know, you know, casually from a friend to friend, you're saying, oh, you know, you, yeah, sure, you should buy some Bitcoin. You know, is it necessary to to operate, you know, in your opinion, in the next, you know, five to ten years, um, or is it always going to be a secondary thing to to the U.S. dollar and the yen and 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 so forth? Yeah, I mean, I think now is a good time to say that nothing I say should be taken as financial advice to anybody listening. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Always do your own research, of course. Um, you don't want to listen to somebody about something you don't understand and go out and buy it and, and right. end up um, getting destroyed on it because it is a highly volatile asset as it sort of finds its footing as digital gold, which we can talk about. Mm -hmm. um, I think is it necessary depends on where you live in the world. You know, we take the stability and the sort of global acceptance of the U.S. dollar for granted a lot because we live in the U.S. and that's all we know. You know, if you go to a lot of these countries, uh, many banks around the world have dollars in their reserves. It's just part of their reserve system back when you could actually redeem those dollars to the Federal Reserve for gold. And, mm -hmm. you know, the Federal Reserve was kind of this um, centralized point of holding all the gold in the world. And basically, you could redeem the dollars at any time. That's no longer the case since 1971 when Nixon took us off the gold 
standard. Mm-hmm. Now they just kind of have these dollars and, and hope that they're worth something. Um, but we really don't run into any inflation or hyperinflation issues in the US where you know the value of your dollar today gets cut in half tomorrow. We just don't experience that. But in so many countries around the world, whether it's Zimbabwe or Venezuela or so many others, that happens because they have currencies that are not widely accepted around the world that are heavily, even more heavily manipulated than the US dollar is by the Federal Reserve and by mm-hmm. our government. So to somebody in Venezuela where if you had a million dollars worth of the currency before the currency started to hyperinflate, that's now worth 37 cents or less today. Mm. So that money is effectively gone. 37 cents to the dollar or? 37 cents in total. In total. If you had a million dollars worth of Venezuelan boulevards before the hyperinflation started, just a few weeks later, worth 37 cents. So effectively all of your wealth evaporated. So to someone in Venezuela fighting something like that, putting their money into Bitcoin, which has a stable monetary policy that can't just be inflated and printed away by the local government because there is no Bitcoin government, um, that's that's incredibly valuable, especially when you can store it as a password effectively in your head that you memorize and and can take across the border. It's not like gold where they can put you through a metal detector and seize it from you. Um, That's incredibly valuable to that person. Mm -hmm. To someone in the US where the US dollar is stable and, and doesn't have a, a set monetary policy, but generally we sort of know the direction it's headed. Uh, it, it may be less necessary, but I think a lot of people now, particularly hedge funds and even big pension funds, are using it as a hedge um, against some of these currencies potentially inflating further in the future. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You touched on uh, digital gold. Yeah. Expand. Yeah, never, so, never heard of the concept. So Bitcoin originally was, its premise in the white paper was digital cash, right? It's this, cash is this, this uh, form of money that, and I have uh, some notes here because I always end up forgetting one of these, it's, it's saleable, it's fungible, it's divisible, it's durable, you know, it's portable, it's acceptable by a bunch of different people, and uh, cash is not really scarce, but that's, you know, a good tenant of money. Yeah. Um, but it, it started out, that was the core concept. But when you get into a global system, and we talk about that $5 cup of coffee, is that a transaction you need everybody in the world to store on their ledger? The answer is probably no. And it mm-hmm. starts to look a little bit less like cash because of the scalability limits of the network. You know, in order for there to be a lot of nodes on the network storing a copy of the blockchain, you have to limit the number of transactions that can happen because otherwise you get to the point where only somebody with a $2 million data center can store a copy of that blockchain because it's sure. so huge. So it grows at a slow enough rate where, you know, you on your laptop right here could have a full copy of the Bitcoin blockchain and run a Bitcoin node and participate in the security of that network. Mm -hmm. Um, Where digital gold comes in is, if you look at gold today, it's really been seen as a store of value. And that's in part because it's been used as money for the better part of the last 2,000 years. You know, going back to the Roman Empire, um, even more than 2,000 years ago, they, they had gold coins and it was very clear the monetary policy. You know, the Roman Solidus, I think it was, although I think that came later. Anyway, one of the coins had seven and a half grams of gold, and then the one down below that was four grams of gold. And mm-hmm. um, over time, gold really became this this storehold, this store of value. And even if you look at central banks today, even though the paper currency that we use every day is not redeemable for gold, central banks are buying more gold today now than ever, hmm. which should tell you that what they really think about their currency that they're just printing on a daily basis. Yes, exactly. So if you think about gold, it, it it's saleable across time and space, meaning that um, you know, if you buy it today, you can generally sell it for the same price, maybe a little bit less, maybe a little bit more 10 years from now. Um, you can carry it around with you. It's not very divisible, so it doesn't hit that property of money, but it is durable. You know, mm-hmm. the, the chemical or rather the, the chemistry of gold is such that you can't transmute something into gold. You can't just make more of it. That's um, good point. Yep. Excuse me. And it's incredibly costly to produce. So yeah. part of where gold gets its value is that Although we are pulling about 1.5% of the total gold supply out of the earth every year, it's incredibly expensive to do so. And because of that, it kind of maintains a certain value. um, And you can keep that value over time. Where Bitcoin comes in is that in a lot of ways, it actually has uh, a better monetary policy than gold itself and is more saleable across time and space. It's more divisible. You can divide one Bitcoin up into 100 million pieces. Um, It's more portable. You can store it as a password in your head versus trying to carry around these gold bricks. So in a lot of ways, it has properties of gold that are actually better than gold itself at a store of value. And generally, when people hear Bitcoin as a store of value, they go, oh, but that's crazy. You know, it dropped 50% last year and then went up 120% and then down 40%. How is that a store of value? But if you look at any store of value or Um, any sort of reserve currency over time, they always go through this tumultuous beginning period as they try to figure out what the value of that thing is. Mm -hmm. And what's interesting now is that 
going back to that one and a half percent of gold being pulled out of the, the world on an annual basis, that's what's called a stock to flow ratio. So gold has a very high stock to flow ratio, meaning that the, the stock, the total supply of it in the world is much, much higher than the flow, the new supply coming onto the market being mined every year. Yeah. Um, Bitcoin will actually soon have a higher stock to flow than gold and be the highest stock to flow asset in the world. So wow. what does that mean to the average person out there? It, it basically means that Bitcoin will be the most scarce asset in the world. So mm -hmm. when you think of something that's a store of value, you want it to have a predictable supply. You don't want somebody to be able to come and double the supply over overnight like they can do with a US dollar or a Venezuelan boulevard yeah. and have the value basically stolen from you through inflation. Um, so as Bitcoin sort of gets to that next level, over the next few halvings, which is where the supply decreases, we can talk about that. So yeah. over the next eight years or so, um, it will have a higher stock to flow value than gold. Mm. Um, and in, in my opinion, I think become more of that global reserve asset that's actually a better store of value than gold in many, many ways. So. Speaking to the, you know, I'm assuming that anyone listening to this right now uh, and, and future listeners are going to be total amateurs in this. Where do you, where do you get Bitcoin? Um, is there an app? Is there a website? Uh, since the guy in Japan doesn't really, he, we, don't, we, don't, we don't need him anymore. Right. Um, you know, where does the average, average listener like myself or, you know, anyone else, you know, start out and grab themselves some Bitcoin. Yeah, so the beauty of Bitcoin is that it's self-sovereign, right? You can hold your own, what's called a private key. It's, it's almost like this lockbox on the internet that you have the key for and nobody else does, and you can store it there. But many people don't have sort of the, the technical security or even the desire to control their own money. Um, and a lot of those people are better off going to a place that's called an exchange. So just like you would go to a stock exchange to buy you know, shares of Tesla or Facebook or whatever, um, you go to one of these exchanges to buy pieces of a Bitcoin. You know, you can buy a dollar worth of Bitcoin or you can buy a full Bitcoin for $10,000 today. Um, it, it just depends on, on what you want. But there are dozens and dozens of exchanges around the world. In the US, a really popular one is Coinbase, C-O-I-N-B-A-S-E. You can download that as an app, link your credit or debit card or bank account, and you can buy some Bitcoin um, along with other crypto assets that I wouldn't personally recommend. Sure. Yeah, it seems to be, through previous conversations, Bitcoin seems to be the, the most reliable, um, you know, cryptocurrency that is here now and will be in the future. Absolutely. Well, and it's also, you know, it's the most proven. It's been around the longest, almost 11 years now, wow. um, whereas others came much, much later. Many of the ones that came shortly after Bitcoin just totally failed. And Bitcoin's also the most secure. So people, you know, often ask, well, can't somebody hack into it? Can't they, you know, I, I see articles about Bitcoin getting hacked all the time. What's getting hacked are the exchanges, the people that are storing those keys on your behalf, um, or individuals who didn't take the proper security precautions and they got hacked and their Bitcoin were stolen. But the actual Bitcoin network itself has never been hacked once. And mm. part of the reason why is that it's secured by computing power effectively. Um, it's, it's the same computing power as effectively two trillion laptops. So if you think there are two trillion laptops, they're obviously not laptops, they're these specialized chips now. Um, but two trillion laptops that are trying to solve this complex mathematical problem, which um, through a bunch of terms that are probably too complex for this process are securing the Bitcoin network because in order to make a change to it, you need to have more computing power than those two trillion laptops or at mm -hmm. least half of them to, to get the majority control. Um, so it's the most secure and anybody else that tries to launch one that also requires computing power generally has a hard time because Bitcoin is the most secure. It has this network effect where people go there. The, the people who are mining it know that they can make a consistent profit versus on other chains they might not be able to. Gotcha. I think it's a topic we're going to have to explain or expand on a, for a second episode. Um, I want to thank you for being on. We're going to wrap up with our quick fire Q&A. Ooh, let's do it. So um, that's going to be kind of one of our catchy things we do on the uh, podcast here. Uh, we do that when we get uh, new people in the gym, new coaches, new interns. Yeah, we throw that on our social media pages. Um, so I've got a quick list here. Um, Rob has not seen this list. Oh, boy. Uh, most of them are just fun, you know, cute kind of questions. Other ones a little quick, deeper, uh, a little bit deeper questions. So ready uh, to play, Rob? Let's do it. All right. Starting off. Favorite food? Ooh, chicken. Chicken. Favorite exercise? Leg day. Yeah. I tricked my brain. I, I, I was going to say, <laughs> I, we learned to love it. Yeah, absolutely. Biggest fear? Ooh. Wow, that's a dark one. Mm -hmm. That's like pretty deep. I mean, yeah. at like a primal level, I would say drowning. Yep. Um, but in some other way, I would say dying alone. There you go. I like it. Favorite color? I don't really have a favorite color, to be honest. Uh, the man wears a black t-shirt to the gym <laughs> every, every day. I guess black is sort of every color in there one. You know. Uh, Apple or Samsung? Apple. 
favorite asset about yourself? My ability to adapt to almost any situation. Nice. Dream job. I don't know. I don't think I've found it yet. All right. Very good. Keep searching. Dream vacation. Ooh. I'd like to go back to Japan. I went to Japan alone for two and a half weeks in 2015, and it was an incredible experience. But I think now, knowing what I know about the country, I know the places I want to go more, and I want to go with someone yeah. this time. Did you ever meet uh, the guy you sent $400 to? I didn't. Know. Well, maybe I did in passing. Yeah, we're going, we're, I was going to say, <laughs> maybe you search for him. Favorite season of the year? Summer. Best concert you've ever attended? Hmm. That's a hard one. Yeah. I think the most memorable one was Coldplay in high school. I was a huge Coldplay fan then, not so much now, but yeah. Chris Martin ran into the audience and it basically it looked like we made eye contact. And oh, yeah. Life-changing moment. He's like, you're the Bitcoin. Yeah. There he is right there. <laughs> you that was even yeah, pre-2013. Exactly. Sunset or sunrise? Mm. I don't know why something like that's so difficult. I... Sunset. There you go. Uh, one of your favorite memories of childhood? Going to the pool. There was this local like community pool that we would go to near my house. And I remember, I think it was my fifth birthday. I would always have a birthday party at that community pool. I just loved swimming. And they had a high dive that, to me, felt like it was 100 feet tall at the time, but it's probably yeah. more like 8 feet tall. Yeah. And I remember jumping off the high dive for the first time. Awesome. New York or L.A.? New York. Favorite app on your phone? Ooh. I'm going to give him a second here, people. He's oh, looking, my goodness. He's just pulling it out. That doesn't mean the one you use the most, but your favorite one. My favorite one is probably an app called Blockfolio. Uh, I can track crypto prices, but what I use it for Shocking. more now is a news aggregator. So it aggregates crypto news from all different sources. You can choose the sources and get it all in your inbox. Very good. Pizza topping. Favorite one. Uh, no cheese. No. Oh, my God. <laughs> Rob might not be joining us for a second time. Oh. <laughs> no. Uh, sweet or salty? Salty. You got a favorite workout song? Maybe not a favorite, but you know something that comes to your mind. Do you remember by Chance the Rapper? That's okay. like a good warm-up song. Ah, Chance the Rapper. <laughs> uh, pets? Are yeah, cats. Cats. And then uh, the opposite. What's a pet peeve of yours? Ooh, a pet peeve. I think someone who says they're going to do something and then consistently doesn't do it. Gotcha. Like if you do it one, once in a while, it's okay. You know, something comes up. But there are people out there that, oh, yeah, I'll see it this time on this day or whatever, and then consistently don't match yep. up with their words. That's incredibly annoying. Well, yeah, I was going to say, you know, I've always, I've always learned for years now, you don't really listen to what people say. You watch what they do. Absolutely. Uh, let's see here. If you had a superpower, what would it be? Like if I could choose any superpower. Yeah, like you just like... Oh, I'd want to fly, 100%. Fly. There you go. I've had two lucid dreams in my life, and in both of them, when I realized I was lucid dreaming, I flew. Nice. It was incredible. That's a sign. <laughs> Most frequently used emoji on your phone? Probably the kissing emoji. There you go. Yeah. Very good. Secret talent that no one knows about? Uh, I'm a really good yo-yoer. I can rock the baby. Oh, really? I can around the world. You I can show my kids that. Oh, hell yeah. That's amazing. Absolutely. All right. Rap or rock music? Rap. Favorite artist? Mm. Kind of alluded to Chance earlier. Chance is good. I would say Still Woozy is one that's on my mind right now. All right. I'm going to give that a shot. No idea. Um, morning person or no? Uh, I think I have become more of a morning person when I realized I can sort of create the schedule. And it feels good to, to wake up in the morning and get stuff done early. Gotcha. Crunchy or creamy peanut butter? Creamy. Favorite sports team? Uh, it would be an esports team, 100 Thieves. There you go. Another thing I have to look up. <laughs> Drake or Kendrick Lamar? Drake. Mm. Final question. Furthest away from Norfolk you've ever been? Japan. Very good. Rob Finch, we appreciate you being on the show, kicking off a uh, hopefully successful podcast, and we'd love to have you back. Thank you so much, Bill. I appreciate thanks, it. Rob. Appreciate it. Guys, thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time.